0: Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Christopher Patterson. Christopher is Edang Trong's husband. Edang is the author of Refugee Life Worlds, The Afterlife of the Cold War in Cambodia, which was a finalist for the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes. Yidang died of pancreatic cancer in the fall of 2022. On this episode, Chris reflects on Edang's work and research. He also talks about the significance of the writing she did and what he hopes her legacy will be. Before we get to my conversation with Chris, I wanted to make sure we heard from Edang. This is her sharing an anecdote from the book in a presentation titled Refugee Archives from Across the Trans-Pacific, A Conversation. You can find a link to the full presentation in the episode notes.
1: Throughout my life, I've heard my mother tell and retell the story of my birth many times. In 1979, my mother, father, and two young brothers escaped from Cambodia. They made it to a refugee camp called Jumbrum Tmei, New Camp, located on the Cambodian side of the Thai-Cambodian border. The genocide was over, but the war raged on between all the different political factions. Every day, a Red Cross bus arrived in the morning to transport a caravan of people across the border. When the bus arrived on one particular morning, my parents were determined to get on it, they sensed an imminent danger and they knew the time had come to pick up and leave yet again. In a crowd of refugees pushing forward they jostled in front of the bus in hopes of being selected. Knowing the sick and the pregnant were given priority, my mother showed her pregnant belly to the Red Cross workers and managed to secure a spot for our family on the bus. After a 16-hour journey, <clears throat> excuse me, the bus arrived at Kawidang Holding Center, a sprawling camp inhabited by over 130,000 people. Soon after they got off the bus, my mother and father heard the news about the attack at Jaram The night before, just after my family had boarded the bus, Khmer Rouge soldiers arrived at the camp without warning, burning the camp to the ground. In Khmer, giving birth is referred to as Chlong Tonle, meaning to cross a river. My mother gave birth to me in Kawi Dang about one month after our arrival there. To remember this passage, my mother and my father chose the name Idang for me. Idang in English, a heavy name to carry. And yet, this name, mom and dad always remind me, holds the memory of our multiple crossings and our survival.
0: Now, here's my conversation with Christopher Patterson. My first question for you is, who are you?
2: I am Chris Patterson. I am the uh, husband of Yideng Truong, who passed away in November 2022 from pancreatic cancer. Um, I'm also an associate professor of social justice at the University of British Columbia. Um, which, which is the same institution where Edang worked. Um, she was in the um, the Department of English as an assistant professor. We were hired together as a spousal. I was her spousal hire. Um, I also I've written um, a couple uh, academic books, um, one on uh, migrant literatures from Southeast Asia, Anglophone literature from Southeast Asia, and another on uh, video games emphasizing their like they're more Asian or as I call it, in the book Asiatic. Kind of genre forms. And I'm also a creative writer. I write under my um, matrilineal name, the name my mother wanted to give me, Kavika Guillermo. And I've written uh, two, three books under that name, two novels, one novel about traveling around Southeast Asia and, and Asia and, um, and living there, um, another about um, a speculative fiction novel. And the third book, which just came out last month, is a prose poetry um, creative nonfiction work about fatherhood um, yeah so that's me
0: congratulations on your book well thank you so uh, maybe we'll start with I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Edang and tell me who she was and just kind of I'd love to get to know her a little bit through you
2: yeah, uh, I uh, first met Idang in in Hong Kong in 2014. I came for a conference that she was organizing and um, I had heard a bit about her um, just through the networks of like Asian North American studies. But uh, and I think we had been in the same room together quite often but we never actually encountered each other face to face. And um, she was just like this very bright, lively, like effervescent like presence in any room that she occupied. And um, I really just began to admire that kind of um, uh, social, like that ability to to be that um, that bright and and that uh, amazing and so smart and so witty. Um, she could always kind of outwit anybody, <laughs> uh, and she she was she would always she was very funny. She was one of the funniest people I ever met, um, and she would always have her stick as she liked to call it, where she could just make jokes and outwit people um and you know she was also very careful because she knew if she made um the wrong kind of or like if she made fun of somebody who didn't like to be made fun of <laughs> that she she would just kind of you know sneakily say something um to me or to a, a good friend and so i just when i met her she was just like so much fun and smart and just kind of all the like amazing things that you could ever um hope for in someone you're attracted to <laughs> i guess because we were attracted to each other and then, uh, you know, the more I learned about her, the more I started to understand, uh, the first, the more amazed I was because she had been through so much and had survived so much and her family had gone through, you know, war and genocide and bombings and so much of that. And then that I began to understand how so much of her um, her intelligence and her uh, the joy that she took from life was also came from that. And it wasn't just survival tactics, I think there's a way of reading survivors as developing everything <laughs> as, a, as a tactic. Uh, I don't think that's uh, uh, quite accurate in general, but in this case, I think she had come to really appreciate life and come to find a lot of beauty and joy in life. And that was what it was like for the eight and a half years um we were together, the six years we were married. It was just the most like joyful, beautiful experience. And um, yeah, I mean, there was, of course, she. She had carried a very heavy burden in being one of the only Cambodian um, people in the room of any conference, you know, any situation, and having to speak for for that um, and trying to do so as accurately and respectfully as possible. But afterwards, she'd be the first to, you know, celebrate life. And so I, I uh, always remember her as somebody who was able to face the darkest parts of humanity and history um, and to still maintain a kind of joy and love for those around her.
0: Yeah. And I mean, she seemed to be so uh, loved by her community too. I've, I've heard from folks she worked with at UBC who just have such admiration for her. And I know when refugee life worlds was, was a finalist, was announced as a finalist for the Jim diva, there was just such an outpouring of celebration for this book, getting recognition that it so deserves.
2: Yeah, and I think because it, um, she, people who had known her knew that she had been working on it for so long, basically since she, in some ways, since she was a kid and <laughs> started writing, but be, since the very beginning of her academic career, um, and it was a, you know, something that was very hard for her to, uh, to co- continually come back to and try to update, um, you know, knowing that it, it, it trying to make it as perfect as possible because of, you know, her. Desire to get her family right, her community, that, that history, um, but also feeling like you know it um, it needs to come out at some point. You know, <laughs> so I think that knowing her and um, seeing the amount of effort and and herself that she put into the book over you know over a decade was a, it was really fantastic for her to also hold the book. Like I think two or three months in August, twenty twenty two um before she passed she was able to hold it in her hands and see that her life's work was going to live on and carry on without her.
0: Yeah. For those who haven't read uh, Refugee Life Worlds uh, Chris can you talk a little bit about the book?
2: Yeah, so it it um I mean a lot of a lot of the book's meaning is in the title itself. <laughs> like it is about the life worlds that refugees create and like with Edang herself a lot of the joys and art and um, networking and community that gets built, you know, after war or even within war and genocide and um, and U.S. bombings and so on. And so she, I think she was, um, you know, consistent presence over the years in Phnom Penh and saw us in, in Cambodia and just saw a lot of the arts community continuing to grow and foster, even despite some of the state's, you know, attempts to crack down on it and things like that and she wanted to produce something that expressed that kind of life, um, that didn't just see Cambodia as a place of death and evil or you know, the dark sides of humanity as it often gets gets put as. And so she sought to create that with this book and she also sought not to distance ourselves from Cambodia um, because she had seen in most work on Cambodia, whether it's popular um, like journalist work or whether it's academic work, always seemed to have the habit of uh, widening the distance between North America and Cambodia, especially in respect to the genocide in the Khmer Rouge. When, um, you know, this is on the very first pages, the very first page of the book outlines the intense bombing campaign um, that the US did on Cambodia and Laos, um, dropping more, 2.7 million tons of um, bombs, more than those was dropped in all of, uh, by the Allies in all of World War II. And it was all in secret. It was all neutral country, um, and yeah, it just produced this um, total collapse of society. And that's how the Khmer Rouge grew from ten thousand people, I think, in nineteen sixty-nine to um, two hundred over two hundred thousand uh, within a span of two or three years. And it was just it was you know easy for them to find recruits. It was like you've been bombed. Um, you want justice. You want some kind of accountability. You have to join us. Um, And who wouldn't, in that situation, you know, want that kind of justice? Um, Justice that still has never come to anybody. There's no one has ever been held accountable for those bombings. And so trying to see that as as intertwined together, seeing Cambodia as embedded within Cold War, within U.S., um, and in in, uh, direct relation with Canadian policies, uh, foreign policies, it was really something that she wanted to emphasize in the throughout the book that this is not a history of a dark, evil place. You know, uh, this is a, a this is our history right? and this is, um, you know, and our history isn't just us welcoming refugees. Right. It's us using refugees as a in a sense to forget all the things that we did in secret.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so powerful was powerful for me in reading the book was uh, in figuring out just how little I understood about Cambodian history, about uh, the story of the Khmer Rouge. I didn't know anything about the bombings uh, the US bombings or any like I it just um, she really brought to light the the silencing and the simplification uh, uh, through time of the Cambodian story.
2: Yes, and that, you know, a lot of the voices that you might expect to bring a lot of that truth, um, you know, were also very heavily censored, some very directly, um, and others censored in the sense that, you know, they were refugees and had to practice and prepare a very particular refugee narrative in order for the host country to accept them. Um, Both in the US and Canada, the majority of people Did not want um, refugees from indochina from cambodia to come and so there was so much hostility against refugees at the time and of course still is today in a lot of ways um and so the narrative that then was produced by refugees themselves was of course about how great these countries are and how um happy they are to be there um when which was partially true of course was the the um the sincere gratitude for you know having being given a space a refuge um, but that also meant erasing a lot of the history that would um, be less welcomed <laughs> into the host country, which is the the host country's own involvement in the genocide,
0: yeah, one of the things she really works to reframe is the the refugee narrative. and and I think this is something we've seen through time where, you know, what's encouraged is, she mentions like the model minority kind of idea as well. The good refugee, the thankful refugee, like folks are just supposed to come here and just be so grateful and not like speak of the struggle or potential racism or all these things that come with coming to a country like Canada. And uh, just like that disparity between the reality of being a refugee and how that word is actually put on folks who are refugees by countries like Canada, and just, you know, what it actually means in reality.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's the the old saying in a lot of critical refugee studies that, you know, we are here because you were there. Um, and, but that also, there's a time and place where one can feel free to say <laughs> those kind of things. And usually it's not within the first like decade of of settlement. And, you know, when one's just trying to learn the English language um, and things like that. So a lot of that um, that kind of work has to, has been done with the future generations um who are able to kind of research their histories and and what, so much has been undocumented um and uh, undisclosed since that time that we know so much more about um how uh how the bombings were um were thought of how inhumane they were and how directly there was so little um you know um, care or, or thought put into who was being bombed or why So there's just been so much more that just verifies a lot of that experience. Um, And it's not, it's no longer just refugee narratives that are meant to, um, uh, that are uh, proving those points anymore.
0: Yeah. Something that's so powerful about the book is that it's not just this academic and kind of critical theory writing. She's including her family uh, memories and personal stories as well. What was it like? for her to work on the book in that sense, because it wasn't just, you know, academic research. She was going through her own family's experience as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, she calls this in the book the uh, the Cambodian Refugee Archive or just the Refugee Archive, um, which is to say that, you know, to do academic work or to, to produce knowledge um, about the history and the life worlds, as she calls it, of Cambodia, she as a refugee cannot ignore you know the stories from her parents the stories from her community the stories of that she herself witnesses every time she she goes to cambodia um when she had an apartment there for about six months um, and would go back and forth all the time for about a period of five years and so um just being so deeply embedded within that space she tries to rather than distance herself from a space which is what scholars are often trained to do um she honors that she honors the the knowledge that has been handed down to her from her parents and um from you know her family and her community. And of course I, I think her being also being a scholar, a very rigorous scholar, probably the most rigorous scholar I ever met, who just, you know, would work on a sentence for like months, like I kid you not, <laughs> just making sure that the information was as correct as it could be. You know, she would just see how she could verify in archives as much as possible those stories, you know, and um I think that was something that she just tried to kind of bring those two those worlds together that are often seen as you know completely separate or or that um especially in asia studies there's this notion that the uh the, the researcher should be distant from whatever they're discussing um because any kind of intimacy could be a bit too close or could produce bias of some sort this is not something we think of at all when when we think of like Um, ethnic studies or critical race studies or gender studies like obviously we want people who know what their those experiences are like Um, a lot of more imperial I would say kind of condoned disciplines like Asia studies still really hold on to this fact that having a kind of personal knowledge is a bad thing Um, and you see it on a lot of you know faculty lists of people who have you know, maybe visited the country that they're working on, but don't necessarily have see their community as being from there, aren't necessarily from there, um, and so Yideng struggled a lot in trying to just you know show people that her work was valid, um, and it over you know over a period of ten years, it really produced something really amazing and magical because she had to then think about and and produce language for the work that she was doing and realize how rare it is for people to do this kind of work. Um, and if she's going to be one of the first to do that, you know, to provide as much um, thought and language behind it so that others can feel freer than she did to to do the same.
0: Yeah, I think there's such a responsibility um, that comes with an author, too, when they're telling their own community and family stories like there's just such a overwhelming um desire and need and responsibility to just get it right like you just wanted to get it right because if other people are going to be learning about your family and your community through your words it's like I I have to get it right and I can imagine it was like that for her as well
2: yeah it was um it was a you know her she was very lucky because her in some ways because her parents um always liked to talk about that time and um there were always two sources her mother and her father (laughs) who both would sometimes like argue about very very specific things like what kind of tree were they beside at this one camp you know this um, labor camp that they were in they would argue about the foliage that was near them you know they would argue a lot about the particular dates you know then Dang would have to go into the archives and find particular dates for things um so it was just always part of the discussion and I would say that like most refugee families at least that I've Encountered, including in Idang's own family, um, there's that that doesn't happen. There isn't like this constant um, remembering of um, of the time before you know, arrival, and um, there's I think that's that's something that Idang also tries to th- think about a lot in refugee life worlds. Um, she uses the concept of aphasia to think about silencing and the kind of um, strategies around silencing, um, but. Her family table was always full of these stories, unlike a lot of refugee narratives that we see. And so she was able to um, constantly have that kind of archive of knowledge being reproduced, being reimagined. Um, and she could always ask more questions about it. Um, every time I reread Refugee Life Worlds, there's always something that I'm like, oh, I didn't know that about Idang's family. Or there's there's something that I like missed out on a little bit. And then I just think, oh, I'm just going to ask her mom next time I see her. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and E had that for all her life, you know, of that constant verification. And she has a family in Cambodia. She has, she knows a lot of researchers there. So there's just such a broad network of people that she could um, communicate with. And that, you know, in academia, they would want her to cut that network at least in half, you know. And but how much knowledge then is lost mm-hmm. or forgotten once one takes that path?
0: Yeah, for sure. In the book, uh, she wrote about going to Cambodia uh, with you and you were able to go on trips like that. What was it like for you to be part of that experience with Yideng? um, And particularly, she, she wrote about, and I know you wrote about it as well in the reprint about being there for the ECCC court verdict. Yes. Um, what was it like to share that experience with Edang?
2: Yeah so, yeah so the ECCC was the extraordinary I might get the acronym wrong <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> court chambers of Cambodia um it, it's it's a human rights you know um, um court to try the members of the Khmer Rouge. Um, and uh, I think they've only really successfully done like three or five people um within like 20 or 30 years that they've tried and um yeah so that that was the first time I went to Cambodia with edang. Uh, I had been before just um, as a kind of backpacker and traveler. And of course, traveling with her was like a completely different experience um, because she knew this place so well and knew so many people there. And it was so much more of a research trip, um, though, by research trip, you know, because Yi Dang was still uh, brought so much life and fun to everything. Uh, we She always made time to like relax <laughs> and go out and have fun and meet a lot of other artists through that fun. Um, but on that first trip, we did go to the the courts, and I didn't really know all that much about, you know, what was happening. I tried to learn as much as I could as soon as, you know, um, I realized this was going to be part of it. We It was a kind of sudden thing. We didn't realize that they were still inviting people to come sit into the court. And it was mostly just, like, foreign journalists and then some uh, uh, Cambodian journalists who were there. And um, it was really through her networking that we were able to go. Um, Yeah, it was just completely surreal, though, being there and seeing the, you know, the perpetrators who um, were partially responsible for, like, the death of many in, so many in Cambodia and so many in Ideng's family. Um, So there were just a lot of uh, tears, of course, and um, I think what was also interesting about that trip was there was all of these small events around Phnom Penh, you know, know, hosted by human rights lawyers and um, survivors. That we're just trying to like think through what was happening with the event like what is the us getting out of this for example yeah. um and being able to try and put so much blame for so much death and destruction onto like three or four people um because that you know at a time when cambodia at that time especially was really struggling to pay back war era debts to the us um, so not only has the us not been accountable it's actually still um taking money from cambodia for take for the fact that they needed money at a time when they were being bombed by the us so there's a, this a complete like kind of sickening um feeling that i remember feeling all the time during that visit while at the same time respecting that that verdict meant a lot to a lot of the people in the dang's family and a lot of the people around us and so there was a, there was always that kind of contradiction whenever we went to put on pen of you know the the feelings and, and needs of the community but then balanced with well what is like these other countries getting out of it where all these countries that seem to not to either bomb Cambodia or really not be there not be present or who took the side of uh, the Khmer Rouge because they were leftists communists themselves you know and so there's just so much kind of complexity there um and th- visiting Phnom Penh with Ideng over you know, a period of four or five years was just completely illuminating um, for any kind of historical situation, I I would think would have that complexity. But in this one, because so much of it is secret and unknown um, and uh, even in academia, I just went to this humongous academic conference on uh, American studies, which is kind of today more American empire studies. And at least in the program, I couldn't find a single panelist of like tens of thousands. on the, who was talking about Cambodia, or the genocide, or the Khmer Rouge. And so being um, something that has so much impact and was such an event and still is, um, being something that's still so unknown and so few people to speak about it was really um, something I've taken that, and I've began to understand more uh, the more that I talk about Edang's work and see that there's such a big community for it, but so few people to speak for that community. Yeah.
0: I know Edang had another book come out this year. How does that book fit with this one? Um, and and what was it like for that book uh, to follow refugee life worlds?
2: Yeah, so that book is called Landbridge, uh, Life in Fragments. And um, it is more of a popular press book. It's with Knopf Canada, uh, with Penguin in uh, the UK and worldwide. And so it it was it's it is similar to, it is kind of a, in some ways a translation of some of refugee life worlds especially the first the preface introduction and first chapter um, in that it just kind of de academicizes <laughs> a lot of it um, is much more personal is much more hard hitting I think um, whenever I reread refugee life worlds I'm amazed at what she can pack into one paragraph how many events and how many feelings it's just kind of like astounding. And that's something that you you're kind of trained to do in academia because you want your main point to be the argument and to show people, you know, what um, and so you offer a lot of proofs right, constantly. Um, But in Lambridge, you you know, there's not there's much more um, time and space to sit with particular events. Um, There's like four or five the, the book is written in fragments and, and there's like four or five of them that are about her uncle, uh, Ching Kuk Or, who um, was in S21, the slang prison, and was executed there. And um, in Refugee Life Worlds, that is literally like one or two sentences mm. about her uncle. And in Lambridge, it, it takes up the space that I think it really kind of needs, right, to, to um understand how impactful that was. Um, and so I think Lambridge is is in some ways, it's like um, it's, it could be read as um, cutting a lot from refugee life roles and just focusing on very small things, but it also expands them and lets them grow um, to such an extent that um, it grows into the future. There's um, Lambridge is also about her cancer diagnosis and about um, a lot of the uh, fragments are letters to our son Kai, um, letters to him as he grows up in the future, and how he can hold this history, um, and all of these ideas with him, um, or you know, not. I right? guess <laughs> if he you know um, chooses whichever way to go, because there's so much. There's my histories as well, right? There's there's so much there, um, but you know what it means to survive, and what it means to live and love and find joy, even as a survivor, and and um, I think Lambridge is just a much more like affective personal and and reflective way of getting at many of the same ideas.
0: Yeah. They're kind of like companion pieces to each other in a way.
2: Absolutely. No, I have this question about, um, in academia comes up a lot about how do we write for other, for like a bigger community rather than just other scholars. And especially in social justice, kind of activism and work. Um, I think Edang gives us, one of the best examples that you could ever imagine of how to do that. Um, if you read these two books together, um, there's, yeah, like one is a, they're, they're so different and, and yet they hit so much of the same marks um, to very different. You could read the same book and be part of the same audience, but I think there's different audiences there that can. I've seen it happen with um, her family that her family will really absorb Landbridge. And then with Refugee Life Worlds, the academic book. They'll say, like, it's amazing, I, I you know, that they learn a lot about the history, but there's so much that they don't feel equipped to understand. Yeah. Um, so Van Bridge is, uh, I think, an amazing example of how a scholar who's done all that work, spent all that time, can still reach a large audience and still be very impactful and, and um, effective.
0: Yeah. What do you hope Edeng's legacy will be?
2: I hope she, I hope many people carry on a lot of the work that she's done. Like I said, seeing at conferences and in journals, just how rare it is for anyone to write about this history has been really illuminating. And for me, because it shows how Iden was trying to build something. Right. And she had a lot of plans (laughs) for the future, you know, even though, even when she, after she was diagnosed, um, with pancreatic cancer, she still was making plans for um, things she might want to do in the future. And it was to her, it was all like building space for scholars like her space that she would have needed and would have benefited a lot from. Um, and there are networks now there's the critical refugee studies network, um, both in the US and in Canada. And there's a lot more support coming out. But um, ultimately, I think her memory will be uh, um, As somebody who was the first to do a lot of things and made space for a lot of other scholars who aren't necessarily Cambodian or writing about Cambodia. You know, she tried to make it abundantly clear in both her teaching and in her work that she really wanted to give to refugees and that she had a very broad idea of what a refugee was, that she didn't agree with the kind of legal humanistic form of a refugee who was displaced from a country. It, could, it was somebody displaced in general, someone who whose home was taken away from them um, who could be internally displaced. And of course, there's all these metaphors that she gives for how what refugees go through. And U.S. bombing or bombs just in general is one of them. Um, the land bridge itself of people coming together and bringing goods back and forth to people in need was another. Um, and so she's also trying to think through all the different experiences that refugees have and create space for all of them. Um, And that's why in both Refugee Life Worlds and Landbridge, she talks quite a bit about Afghanistan, Syria, um, refugees coming from the Middle East, um, because to her, those histories are not separate. Neither is the space that she's trying to build.
0: That was Christopher Patterson. Chris is Edang Trong's husband. Edang is the author of Refugee Life Worlds, The Afterlife of the Cold War in Cambodia, which was a finalist for the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing that Provokes. Edang died of pancreatic cancer in the fall of 2022. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
1: Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.